friends, it's Olive here. Welcome to the Big Bright Dark Podcast. In this episode, we are asking ourselves one of the biggest questions of our time, at least in my opinion. Don't turn off the radio just yet or hit the stop button. Uh, This is going to be a fascinating episode, even though we do, yes, grapple with the question, what does it take to confront the realities of global warming and find the sweetness of life? I know it's kind of the larger theme of the whole podcast, and uh, we don't answer it all in this episode, but we do turn over some interesting stones along the path. And we don't embark on this alone. In this episode, we are joined by authors and community organizers, Matt Hearn and Am Johal. Over the span of several years, Am and Matt, along with their friend, the cartoonist and journalist Joe Sacco, set out on a series of road trips. And they weren't just any kind of road trip. They brought this inquiry into a place that, for many, exemplifies the tensions and the urgency of it. They traveled to the tar sands of Alberta, Canada, in the territories of the Dene, Woodland Cree, Métis, Lubicon, and Chippewan peoples. And they wrote a book about the whole thing, and they called it, you might guess, Global Warming and the Sweetness of Life. So before we get started, just a bit of a background for those of you listening from afar who might not be as familiar with the tar sands and Fort McMurray or Fort Mac or the Patch, as it's called. So Fort Mac is considered by some to be one of the hottest ecological battles of our time. It sits at the nexus of capitalism, colonialism, and climate change. It's Canada's wealthiest city per capita, with an average household income of close to $200,000 a year. It is also Canada's fastest-growing economy. It is also Canada's fastest-growing source of greenhouse gas emissions. A 2017 report from Oil Change International found that, quote, there is no scenario in which tar sands production increases and the world achieves the Paris climate goals, end quote. At the same time, people and families travel from all over the country and the world to access the opportunity to earn the kind of money that sends kids to college, that puts food on the table in small towns in the province of Newfoundland, for example. Fort Mac is considered the driver of the province of Alberta's economy and many others as well. As Matt says, the tar sands are a place where people are finding their best life. And at the same time, it's a place that relies on an industry that is destroying Indigenous communities and contributing to Canada's greenhouse gas emissions at an alarming rate. The Indigenous Environmental Network and others have called the tar sands a slow industrial genocide of the Indigenous communities in the area, as contaminants from oil sands development permeate the land, water, and air of the boreal landscape. So, as you might imagine, Am and Matt and Joe had a lot of opinions and ideas about Fort Mac. As self-identified environmental activists and organizers, they have fought pipelines and placed their politics squarely in line with Indigenous land rights and land defense. But they also felt a kind of dissatisfaction with the tenor of the politics around it. They saw an absence of class analysis, a divide between urban opinions and rural experiences. So that's why when Matt's daughter decided to move to Fort Mac and take a job in one of the camps, something awoke in him, something that became the seed for a journey and this book. And just before we get to that and hear from Matt, here's a bit of backstory. 
He and his partner adopted their daughter after her mother died, after knowing her from a very young age. And here's the rest of that story in Matt's words. So she, you know, was, had a tough childhood in a lot of ways and uh, raised with a, a very, a real paucity of privileges and, and, and mobilities in a lot of ways um, and has made herself a, a, a great life. And, and, and going to work in a tar sands was part of that for sure, right? She was 26 or 27 or something like that and worked in bars for years and years and restaurants and made lots of money, but it sort of stuck in her life. And so she literally didn't tell me until two weeks before she was gone because she was embarrassed, you know? And I was like, kid, of, of course, you know, like I, I love and support all your decisions. Um, but part of me was also like, Jesus, <laughs> like, you're going to work in, you're going to go work at a camp in the tar sands. But because of my, my love for the kid is like, well, okay, let's, I, I'd have to think about that. Um, I have to understand like what, how this is working and then to meet her friends, right? We, who are all like basically, you know, black and brown girls from tough backgrounds who have, you know, who've gone to Fort Mac and done beautifully and have done so well. Um, and to be that, that kind of sympathy and that kind of care and love and friendship with those guys, I think, insisted that I think in, in, in different, think differently in some ways. There's a, a, an ongoing frustration from both Em and I and many of, I'm sure you and many other colleagues and friends of ours, of the, the, just the sheer absence of class politics throughout ecological discourses. Um, and so much of that uh, uh, ends up in, 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 in white liberal opprobrium for working class people who work in the tar sands or other putatively ecological damaging projects. The debates are, are yes or no. And there, there seems to be no political project towards defining uh, alternative political horizons that, that are both radical and certainly ecological in their nature. This is Am. Yeah, I was going to say, I think uh, one of the, the, some of the conversations we had before we went up there, I think there were some things that we really shared that, you know, environmental theory and writing that was out there, there was something about it that for us just wasn't hitting home. You know, Matt grew up in Sydney, a working class uh, town uh, on the island. I grew up in Williams Lake. My, my father, my parents uh, immigrated from India. He, he worked as a lumber grader in a sawmill. And you know, saw firsthand a lot of people from the South and the environmental movement coming in and, you know, saying all sorts of things about people who worked in, in forestry uh, at that time. And so in some ways, I viewed people working in the patch and and the kinds of things, the kind of choices that people are uh, forced to make to go into uh, work in a place like that. And so we wanted to give a kind of fair airing to that uh, perspective because it's very easy to go in and uh, present people in a one-dimensional way. They're all monster truck driving, you know, all, all this type of stuff that gets done about Fort Mac all the time. That wasn't the story we were trying to tell. And in many ways, we were actually, the book isn't really about Fort Mac, or, nor was it intended to be. Going on a road trip to Fort Mac was a way to think about development and the time of global warming and how we need to think in and around it and beside it in some type of new way. And there is urgency to think in new ways, to look at this question, as Matt says, of what other possible futures might there be. And the book doesn't bring cut and dry conclusions, but it does make a case for engaging fully with the real lived experiences of all involved and all who are impacted by these questions. You know, you spend time in indigenous communities, they're just being absolutely devastated and like in the, in the starkest and most like gross way, even more than you might even, well, that I certainly might have even guessed, right? The, the, the starkness of not just ecological violence, but, but bodily violence inflicted on people on a regular basis is just so, um, 
It's just stark. That's that's the right word for it. Um, um, but then you go to town, and you can so you could have you know incredible sympathy with and 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 feel the pain and like in the Lubicon and and just the devastation that's being done, not just like ecologically and and socially, but to the whole political kind of um, the whole political rationalities and the economic models of these nations that have been there for forever. Um, but then you can also go to town and, and, and meet people from all kinds of communities that are finding their best lives in Fort Mac and working in the tar sands. And we're talking about like a, a town of 60,000 people maybe with 100 different uh, identifiable ethnic communities with um, people from all over the world that are being drawn to those jobs. And, and, and to try to, to, to build those, not fear those contradictions, right? To actually go to those contradictions and actually to be able to, to, to live with them and to say, n n like, now what are you going to do, bro? Like, now what happens? So you, you feel both of those. But look at a family, you know, look at a family from Nigeria that just arrived here and is for the first time has been able to bring some of their family members over and are sending their kids to college and are having a level, you know, like look at them and say that. You know, say that to, you know, to when we sat in, in you know, in, in our, our buddy's bar in, in Fort Mac, right? And it's all my kid and our kid's friends. They're all like young black and brown women who are like finding lives that they never imagined would be available to them. So to avoid the and to try to eschew the easy narratives, the easy kind of like green narratives, but at the same time recognize that we're talking about uh, something that should probably be, well, should rightfully be called genocide, should be called indigenous genocide. And to sit with those two things and to say, okay, what do we do now? And so the trajectory of the book should follow that. Uh, well, it does follow that. It, it traces our like trying to sort that out yeah. and to think through that. And the, and the answers are not easy ones. I think, yeah, in a way, the book probably asks more questions than it, than it answers. But I, I think uh, for us, we went into it genuinely befuddled a little bit where, you know, there's a clear sense of what's happening, what's at stake, what we all ought to be doing. But when we talk about in our day-to-day -day lives, you know, how much do we actually change and how we're mm -hmm. all implicated uh, somewhat. And certainly the people in Fort McMurray are working directly on the patch, but we all consume are involved in particular uh, ways uh, as part of a network of a culture that's uh, functioning in particular ways, the kind of civilizational kind of questions that are at stake. And, and we need to make those digestible in a way uh, that affects day-to-day -day life because the kinds of changes that are required are, are really transformative in, in nature. And I, th I do think uh, that the parts of ecological scholarship and writing that do frustrate us is that it tends to be written to a kind of audience that's already on side, that's already um, uh, invested uh, in a particular kind of uh, a worldview that, uh, although it may be uh, correct in some ways for, for people who don't share, it's a very difficult way to get into those questions. Um, and and uh, certainly our upbringing in rural BC is, is kind of a part of that because in many ways, uh, you know, I know a lot of people that went and worked in the forest industry and, and other places and uh, continue to do uh, to this day. And if we can't speak to those people uh, about uh, these types of questions in a way that's an invitation, then we're not going to be dealing with the question of social change at the scale that we're talking about. And the social change they're talking about is not the kind of technological fix to the climate crisis that many of us might just wish for. For Am and Matt, market-funded banks of solar panels or fields of wind turbines are not actually the end game. They're looking for something much more powerful than that, for transformation that extends beyond economies into ourselves, into the landscape, into our relationships.
We can easily imagine a capitalism that quote unquote solves global warming as a technical problem and carries on happily. Um, dominating um, other parts of the other than human world. I, I can't imagine a, an ecological capitalism, uh, a worldview that is based on surplus capital and um, the exploitation of natural and human resources for profit. Does, does, I, I, can't, I, I cannot see an ecological capitalism. So that an, an anti-capitalism has to be part of an ecological worldview, but it's not sufficient. Um, there, there, and a huge part of that then is is confronting colonialism, and in our case, particularly settler colonialism, um, and that those two pieces then thinking through domination, domination of people, and domination of the other than human world, uh, to not separate those things, that those are actually part and parcel of a of a worldview, um, that become that become entwined in our everyday sensibilities in, 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 in so many ways that it becomes it becomes an unbelievable project to even think through and to pull on which knots are we pulling on, which threads are we actually talking about here. And so some part of that then requires us thinking entirely outside of ourselves to try to, what are the mechanisms by which we can get outside of the sensibilities and the assumptions um, that we carry with us constantly. And as a middle-aged, middle-class white dude, that is a, an ongoing project, right? So that involves, you can't think ecologically without uh, an everyday constant interrogation of whiteness, for example. There's, there's no way to think about, for example, the tar sands without thinking critically and constantly about, about whiteness, to thinking about settler colonialism, to thinking about the entwined dominations and the entwined hierarchies that make the tar sands so possible, and in fact, nay, even inevitable, given the capitalist certainties which, under which Canada is, is founded. So that if you, if, you, if you take Canada and a kind of a neoliberal sensibility as, a, as an inevitability, you, it becomes very easy to end up where Justin Trudeau has ended up, for example, a very performatively liberal, sensitive, um, indigenously like concerned uh, man who will, you know, shed tears about the, the about ecological damage and about the damage being done to indigenous communities, and yet will say that there is no country in the world that would find billions of dollars or you know billions of barrels of oil on the ground and, and leave it there while there's still a market for it. When Justin Trudeau says that, it makes perfect sense. There's, of course, nobody would leave that in the ground, but it sucks all the air out of any transformative possibility. In Justin Trudeau's mind, there's, there's nowhere to go. There's, there, of course we wouldn't. And, 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 and so how do we think outside of that? among us does not feel entwined in the global warming crisis. If anything, this book is all about the struggle to create a path through the entanglements, the entanglements of systems, systems that carry so many of us forward into a future that continues the status quo, systems that make participation not just logical, but pretty much necessary for most of us. And Matt found in a conversation in particular with one of his daughter's friends, Gita, who'd chosen to stay in Fort McMurray and earn a better living than she could anywhere else. This very tension. Gita looked at us one time um, uh, up in Fort Mac and said, look, if I didn't take this job, uh, it's not like the tar sands would shut down. Somebody else would take it. So what difference does it make if I do or I don't? And that's the kind of relationship that, of course, we have too, right? So it's a joke we tell often too, right? Like what kind of people 
repeatedly fly and drive thousands of miles in a giant in giant planes and you know giant F-150s around northern Alberta just to like have a good time and muse about global warming. Who does that? This particular kind of elitist political sensibility that is very comfortable for middle-class white people to look down upon people and say, well, you know, I buy organic and I ride my bike and I, you know, I, I, I buy carbon offsets and, you know, as if, as, as if that somehow is an ecological consciousness that is, there's only really available to, to people of means. And so that somehow then ecology gets repositioned as a, as a lifestyle accoutrement as one more kind of, you know, plastic, you know, uh, uh, non-plastic shopping bag that you can carry around to flaunt your ecological sensitivity. Yeah. And, and do you think also, though, that there's a way in which that's also a response to the deep anxiety? There's a sense of, so this is some of, you know, my own research looked at the ways in which people make, like, manage their own, you know, psycho psychological, psychosocial responses to living in this time. And part of it is this, this, this sort of obsession with, the minutia of reusable shopping bags and recycling all those things because there's so few other options available. I hear it as a very personal book. Like I hear it as like like an offering to the individual for a way to make sense um, and and step out of or make room in the kind of you know bound upness of of flying and driving in order to write a book about climate change. Yeah, I, I think there's there's a, there's a real kind of um, disorientation that comes with the temporality of global warming, right? So the things that we do today, the impacts go far into the future. And, uh, you know, the, the science was decided in the 70s, but here we are uh, in this month where the uh, readings have gone to 410 parts per million for the first time in whatever 800,000 years or something like that. And so um, these little changes that we can make or, or the even you know, uh, getting down to flatlining the amount of carbon emissions, the reality of um, whatever we're doing right now goes far beyond our lifetime in terms of its impacts. And so it's uh, human beings and civilization in, in general have a hard time to plan beyond our own lifetimes. And that's kind of the roadblocks that we move into and the general uh, inertias that uh, we see in society related to these questions, it, it's you can go into a very dark place very, very quickly. And I think, uh, I think you do see some of our own personal anxieties uh, in the book. Certainly myself and, and certainly Am and I and Joe too, you, we find ourselves in these, in these theoretical dead ends. Mm -hmm where are the, the traditions that we can rely on, our intellectual traditions, the kind of radical political traditions we, die, we rely on, um, are not sufficient. And in these moments of insufficiency and dead ends, Am and Matt turn to friends and colleagues, including Glenn Coulthard, a member of the Yellow Knives Dene First Nation and Associate Professor of First Nations and Indigenous Studies at UVic, and Leanne Simpson, the writer, artist, and Mishisagig Nishnabeg scholar. You know, calling up Glenn and saying, Glenn, come and talk to us. <laughs> like, let me tell you what we're into. And, and, and of all people, of all the people in the book, it's, and I think we try to make, make that clear, is that really Leanne helped us tremendously on, on multiple different occasions, right? I think a lot of that for us is, in, and for me anyways, is, is her helping us think through development. So much of that is, 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 resides at the heart, is thinking through about what are we talking about when we talk about tradition and change. Um, and so for me, as a, as a Euro settler, you know, fourth generation Euro settler here, um, I distrust almost all of my traditions. 
so most of my cultural background and the road in which my family and my, my people got here are loathsome and shameful and regrettable, and I don't know what to rely on. So when, when, when Leanne, for example, says, she asks, um, what would my ancestors, a part in a book where she says, if she lives, she lives in uh, what's now Ontario, and she says, which part of my drive into Toronto would my, would my ancestors recognize? And then she ends up talking about the idea about, about how you couldn't, her ancestors couldn't bank money. They had to bank relationship, right? And to me, that, for example, was a pivot into thinking about scarcity and about anxiety, the anxiety that haunts settlers, right? The desire for, the constant desire for, for more and the anxiety that, that what you know, we, we talk about there, the, the, the stolo word for, for white people is the hungry ones, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, this, this constant hunger and this dissatisfaction, this neuroses of, of, of settler life, right? That when it's never enough. And, and her, her evocation then of, of banking, even just saying the word of banking relationships is to me was just, it hasn't left me. One of the things that Glenn mentioned in the in an interview with him was talking about that the domination of nature by humans uh, starts with the domination of humans by humans. And it's sort of in that built-in equal- inequality uh, that we have sort of uh, had that kind of metabolic rift with nature in, in particular. And trying to reestablish that relationship both with land and with each other is a kind of central question of how we move forward from that. And in these themes like Summa Kase, Buen Vivar, uh, it, there are other traditions uh, where these things are far more central. And so uh, whether we're talking about uh, the ways in which Leanne Simpson talks about the connection to land uh, from her nation, or we're talking about um, Ecuador placing some of these ideas into their constitution or attempts to uh, leave uh, oil in the ground, uh, just in a very different way of looking at what development ought to be and can be, uh, these kinds of traditions are coming from uh, places that aren't North America and Europe in particular, are coming from, from other places and other traditions. And I think, uh, you know, what we tried to do was to uh, open up conversations that would uh, put uh, some of these ideas in conversation with continental philosophy and activists uh, that are doing work on the ground. Because in a way, I think a lot of these things are, have a strong relationship to each other. In general, it's talking about a notion of harmonious uh, collective development, uh, a kind of a new form of public coexistence, and that is in diversity and in harmony with nature. There are so many um, uh, traditions and cultures that have uh, worked uh, through in that way for centuries, and so I do think that people can draw on their own traditions as well that have a relationship to these concepts. Towards the end, you have this piece about uselessness and the power that uselessness can be powerful. And to me, that like that uselessness, that's a that's an individual experience in a way that's like I think a marker of many people's anxieties. And certainly, you know, folks who are raised in a in a kind of Western capitalist world where it's like to be useful is to be worthwhile. So I'm wondering if you could speak to um, speak to that that temporality and the scale and the very individual struggle of of uselessness in that context. Yeah, even in the 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 title of the book, the 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 the, the global warming and the sweetness of life. The sweetness of life. We were referring to 
this Italian political philosopher, Giorgio Agamben, and he was talking about um, this in relation to, to Europe and, and how the southern countries of Europe have a very distinctly different character than in the north. And this notion of the right to define life as something outside of work, and he uses this term, dosa de vive, the sweetness of living, uh, or la dolce vita, the good life. Um, there's various uh, versions of these uh, words and, and contexts in, in different cultures. And Agumbin's work um, is, is looking at uh, the exhaustions of how we're captured both in terms of politically uh, but also how the body becomes captured. Even resistance becomes captured within the form of power. And in some of his later writing, he's talking about this notion of withdrawal and the, the politics of withdrawal, the politics of use and uselessness. And um, there's something about that that we were really drawn to because in a sense, we have forms of power, we have forms of resistance that in many ways are captured within power in terms of how we get into these gridlocks, that there's something about uselessness that can maybe give us the time uh, to think in a more transformative way and at the level of relationships with both humans and the other than human world. And even as Am and Matt are able to go into these questions about global warming and the sweetness of life, they also still wrestle with some of the most basic parts of it in their daily lives, as many of us might as well. I'm curious about this, um, this kind of existentialness, right? Like, how do you think about global warming? And, and I, I actually kind of think that I don't believe it. Like, I, of course, I believe in global warming. I believe in global warming in the, in the, the sense that every smart person with, uh, with access to to databases and to climatological and glaciological evidence suggests this. Like every, I, I believe it on one level. I don't think I actually believe believe it yeah. in some very deep level. Because honestly, like I make fun of everybody else, but I don't change that much. Sure, I ride my bike and I like, you know, whatever, shop local and, you know, whatever, do whatever white person things and, you know, you're supposed to do. But really, I don't really change. I, I haven't stopped flying. Um, I still drive when I need to. Um, and I think somewhere deep in my gut, I don't actually believe it because of this temporality and this distance that Anne was speaking about. Honestly, I don't really think that that many of us believe it, right? You're talking, so we're getting hosted in, in Seattle by 350.org. Well, you just said we're at 410. Like 350, that's a fantasy. We're never getting to 350 in any of our lifetimes or anything like our lifetimes. But that's supposed to be the, like 350 was supposed to be the absolute, absolute tipping point where like, there's no going back to absolute, you know, to catastrophe. And we're way past that. And there's no evidence we're like 410 that you said we're at now. There's no evidence we're going to, there's, there's no believable future where we're stopping there. We're as in deep shit as deep shit gets. So I'm curious, I've always been curious about a number of things that are wound up in that, which is why don't we actually believe that? Surely of all people, Am and I should believe that. I use the metaphor, it's, it's a bit hoary, but sometimes it's like, it's like someone says, your house is on fire, Matt. And I'm like, oh, damn. Yeah. Yeah, totally, man. I'm going to get there. You're like, no, man, your house is on fire. I'm like, yeah, totally. I'm going to go and I'm going to turn the thermostat down. Like, absolutely. I did that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like the, the scale of the, of the problem and the immediacy and the existentialness yeah. of what we have every evidence to believe is true is, is not matched by virtually any of our actual behaviors. I don't know what it would be like for me or for anybody else if we really believed in global warming. But to say, well, what would that mean. And for Am and I, that began to open up those questions. Say, well, what would a different mode of life, what, what would we even be talking about? What would we even look at beyond just, hey, I drive a Prius? Um, 
that those kinds of particular kind of consumptive approaches that in fact do that do nothing but exacerbate anxieties um, and that have a, a deeply apoliticized rendition to their to their affect but to say well what where, where could we even look where could we even ask in the context of change and tradition what would a sweetness of life look like So certainly, well, if you were to actually think about, and, and Glenn was good about this, to think through like an opposition, you think through the through a lens of, of exploitation. So, well, what is what is exploitation? It is it is extracting surplus labor, extracting surplus without an actual care for the well-being of the other. That is what drives capitalism, and what is allowing you know what allows the uh, exploitation of humans by other humans, but certainly then the exploitation of. Um, of the other than human world by humans. So you say, well, what's other than that, right? What's like, what, 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 what is another way to think that through? And, and part of that is to think through a politics of, for me, of friendship and love, right? Is that a substantive concern for the well-being of another that we can think about in terms of, I think about in terms of friendship a lot, but I think in terms of, of love, right? And so that's the part where we end, right? Is that ecology has to be thought of as a love affair for the other than human world. And that part gets easy in a lot of ways. That feels nice to say. But the flip of that, and, and Glenn, of course, is tremendous on this, uh, a, a politics of love makes no sense unless it is, and it's, it's worse than flaky or, or ineffectual, it's much worse than that, unless it comes with, I want to defend the things that I love and care about, and I hate the people that are destroying my neighborhood, you know, my territory, and my people, and my friends. And I'm talking about personal action, but more than that, I'm talking about personal, social, and political action. And I'm speaking particularly about organizing, right? About a kind of political organizing that is in fact animated by a, by a resentment, by a revenge and by a, by a hatred for those parts of our lives that are, that are destroying the people and the places that we love. Yeah. And I don't think you can have one without the other. A politics of love cannot just be, be reduced to, to evocations of wandering in the mountains and thinking about you're one with the world or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's a very different kind of a love and a love that has to be willing to defend the damage that is being done to people and yeah. to places. Before we wrapped up the interview, Am read an excerpt from the book that describes a particular vision, perhaps, of a sweetness of life. It's the story of an evening with Melissa Herman and her family in the community of Janvier. Melissa is a Dene organizer and also one of those people who, as Am described her, seems to hold 25 different jobs in town, while also devoting a lot of time and energy to her community of Janvier, a reserve about 120 kilometers outside of town, where much of her family still lives. We spent a full day in Janvier, and it was easily our favorite day of that trip. Melissa had really wanted us to meet her Uncle Dennis, but he was hardly the only one at home. We arrived to the warmest welcome possible and settled into smoking and drinking coffee in the kitchen, cracking jokes and telling stories. Kids and cousins, aunts and sisters kept rolling through the little house, happily greeting us and making us feel at home. Dennis talked about the season's hunting, showing us photos and told us about their family. Soon we were in his truck, bouncing through dirt bush roads with Auntie Diane, Melissa and the kids in lawn chairs in the back. Dennis drove, pointing out important spots on their land, showing us eagles, bear, and wolf tracks, and taking us past camps and fishing spots, trap lines, and cabins. We stopped several times to pick buckets of wild blueberries. We'd be driving along, and Dennis would pull up suddenly and point at the undergrowth. 
We didn't see much, but in minutes we were all fanned out, kneeling and squatting, clutching yogurt containers, and trying not to eat more than we collected. At three or four places we parked and gathered around for Dennis to show us pools of clear, fresh water, bubbling up in covert spots, filtered through the muskeg. We dipped cups into the little oases, feeling like we'd shared in a secret, and the water tasted earthily clean like moss and bush. After a long, slow, frequently pausing drive, we stopped beside a lake, perfect and peaceful, white pelicans floating offshore, fish jumping in the fire pit already prepped. We cooked steaks and baked potatoes and rolled on the grass after stuffing ourselves with too much food. An uncle walked over from a cabin down shore and they regaled us with expansive stories of his love life. All the while, Dennis talked to us about the land. He kept repeating how lucky he was to live this life. He spent as much time on the land as possible, hunting and fishing, gathering blueberries and medicinal herbs, and it is all around him, right outside his door. He remarked to us several times how wretchedly satisfied he felt. It's impossible to listen to Dennis and not think about the other parts of our drive to the lake, because it wasn't just berries and muskeg water we had stopped to look at. It was also pipelines, signs of pipelines to come, pipeline detritus, bush roughly cleared for pipelines, working in abandoned pipeline equipment, pipeline garbage, remnants and reminders everywhere of the oil and gas industry. The carelessness, the intrusiveness, the virulence was grossly redolent of Lubicon territory. We saw so many pipelines around Jean Vier running beside the road, one after another crossing our path, markers locating buried lines. Everywhere we drove, far off the reserve and deep into the bush, still the presence of industry was everywhere. It just never stopped. Oil dominates everything in northern Alberta, and capital cannot, will not leave anywhere alone, especially when it is indigenous land. When Dennis and Melissa spoke about industry, they were by turns sanguine, infuriated, and resigned, and mostly all those things and a whole, whole lot more. Dennis kept wondering, when is enough enough? Later in the afternoon, talking about a set of signs we had seen that promised more pipelines to come, he looked across the fire and said, they're getting ready to make us nothing. Why not just bomb us now and get it over with? We asked Melissa whether she thought much about development, and she replied, that's not a word we use. When I see a word like development being used, it's exclusively talking about industry. Melissa, in so many ways, lives the tensions that lurk throughout this book. She told us that people don't like to hear her talk about global warming in Fort Mac. They immediately position her as biased against industry. They ask her, whose side are you on anyway? Melissa lives in town but gets challenged when she tries to balance her life in Fort Mac with her life on the reserve. People mock her desires to share a traditional life with her family and daughter. For Melissa, carrying on traditions like picking berries and hunting moose is part of thinking long term. She says she can talk about sustainability with industry, but what difference will that make to her relatives in John B.A.? Who in industry is willing to talk about decolonization? She says, when I go north of town, I find myself physically and emotionally drained when I see the effects of industry on the land. I'm more interested in preserving a traditional way of living. Thank you, friends, for joining us on another episode of Big Break Dark. And many thanks, of course, to Am Johal and Matt Hearn for their time and energy in doing this interview. If you can, check out their book, Global Warming and the Sweetness of Life. It's worth it. You can find us at bigbrightdark.org. 
where you can get in touch with episode ideas, reflections, and inquiries of various kinds. Big Bright Dark is brought to you by me, Olive Dempsey, Jenna Grazley, Heather Talbot, and Christina Kuhn. Original music is written and performed by Mark Beattie. You can find us on Stitcher and iTunes. We'd also always appreciate a rating and a review. It helps other folks uh, find us as well. And please do check out our previous six episodes and feel free to pass them on to friends and people who you think would appreciate and enjoy them. We acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional and unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Thank you.